Hi guys, quick one before we get into the episode. This episode is sponsored by Zencaster, which is the production suite that I've used from the very beginning of this podcast. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast, hang around at the end of the episode for our 30% discount referral code. Thanks. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these your notes about what we're going to say? Anything is the short answer. (laughs) So how many novels did you not finish? Oh my God, so many. (laughs) It was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. (laughs) You've got to hear first. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the right and wrong podcast today i'm joined by murder mystery horror young adult writer amy mccaw hi amy hi. welcome to the show keep that introduction i'm going to start using that <laughs> just whenever you enter a party yeah or something. just whenever i meet anybody <laughs> how are you doing How's it all i'm going? really good thank you it's really nice to talk to you at this point um a couple of weeks when my next book's coming out so i'm just starting to think about what yes. it's going to be like to go from being a debut author to slightly more experienced author I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing but <laughs> oh yeah I guess you you lose the title of debut yeah. author once your second book's out exactly so I'm not quite as shiny new anymore but hopefully I'm <laughs> growing and learning as an author you lose all the sympathy from the yeah other people. <laughs> yeah that's it now but of course yeah your second novel Mina and the Slayers out yes. September yeah um we will talk about it but le- be- before we do that let's go back let's go all the way back to the first one your debut, yeah. Mina and the Undead, whilst you're still a debut novelist. <laughs> and even further back from then, because you started in this sort of industry, this community as a book blogger. Yeah, I did. So um, I went to Yelk, the Young Adult Literary Convention, and did a workshop um, about starting a blog and just spontaneously decided to start one. Because one of the publishers said to me, you absolutely should have a blog, you know, more about YA books than just about anyone I know. And I was like, well, that's a big compliment. I'm going to try that. And yeah, I did that for quite a few years. And I honestly think that's one of the reasons why I got a book deal, because it just set me on such a good path and made me part of the community. And I think I learned so much and I ended up pitching to my agent a few years later, also at Yelp, where I learned about blogging. And then the following year, met my publisher there. So if Yelp didn't exist, I may I may not have written any books and we'll never know. Um, but yeah, wow. I, for me, it's been amazing to be part of that community. And I think the support since I've become an author has been really lovely as well because people have been there through that whole journey with me. They've, they've talked to me about being desperate to be an author, sat with me at Yalk and then been to Yalk and watched me be up on stage as an author. So yeah, That's it's awesome. been nice to have people as part of that journey. Yeah, you must have a really good sort of tribe around you. Yeah, I have. We've got, I've got a little team that we call Team Mina with my publisher and it's <laughs> kind of people I've collected um, in sort of my group of friends along the way. Um, some that knew me right from the beginning of blogging and then some that really liked the first book. Um, so it's great that I've just got this group of people that are excited about content that I put out and they help me share it. So it's been a real advantage to have a lot of bloggers in my corner. I would recommend it. <laughs> um, and have you, have you sort of dialed back on the blogging since, you know, you're book has come out and you've got the second book on the way yeah I have so it was interesting I got to the point in my blog where it was starting to feel a little bit like a chore sitting and writing it down and I think as soon as something that's meant to be pleasurable becomes a chore you've got to kind of evaluate it and because of the pandemic I was being asked to do all these virtual events my book and I loved them I was like who would have thought that I would actually enjoy being on camera and stuff but I did and I decided then that I'd start my YouTube channel and then a little bit after that I took the plunge and did TikTok and I'm finding that possibly because I've got a toddler and a job and I'm trying to write books at the same time. 
I feel like recording a short video is a bit more manageable and somehow seems really fun and invigorating again. So I'm still talking about and reviewing books, but I'm just doing it in a different way now. Yeah. Okay. So more sort of, I guess the obvious thing about TikTok is it's very short. So if you to put a whole review in a TikTok is a sort of snapshot review. Yeah, it is. And it feels like it can be quite quick and spontaneous. Like if I just think of a funny thing that I want to say, or like I realised I was reading seven books at once accidentally <laughs> somehow. So I just filmed that stack of books really quickly. And it just feels like I can create content a bit more easily rather than logging onto a blog, thinking about it, trying to remember. I feel like it yeah. just fits into my life a bit better this way somehow. That's great. So you're still doing it, but it's different. You've kind of yes, evolved it yeah. into something new. Yeah. What This time whilst you were blogging, whilst you were going to Yauk and, and sort of meeting all these people, were you always writing your own stuff in that time? Yeah. So I used to be a teacher. Um, I graduated um, from uni studying law, which was totally different from teaching. Um, <laughs> and then I did a teach training qualification. And even from that time, I've got really early books. My first book was a vampire book, which I'd never let anybody read because it was terrible. Um, and I didn't really send that out to anybody. But teaching took a lot of my time and energy and about I carried on writing but it was quite sporadic between holidays and then I became a consultant about five years ago I think now and that was when I thought actually I've now got my evenings back I've got my weekends back that I'm not marking anymore um and I just decided this is it I'm actually I'm going to do it and I got um a place in a mentoring program called Write Mentor and I had to have the book finished by um like a few months later to go in front of an, a panel of agents so for me, that just kind of kickstarted everything because as soon as you give me a deadline, I'm suddenly motivated and suddenly, you know, because you, you could carry on revising a book forever. I'm sure it's the same with your podcast. Like you could edit and tweak and think of more things you want to say. Just got to hit publish, haven't you? Um, yes. And that, yeah, that end point was really good for me because it was like, I can do nothing now. It's out there. The agents have got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was great. And I think that although I love teaching, it was kind of, for me, I don't know how people teach and write books. There are some amazing authors I love, like Sue Warman is a school librarian and author. And I don't know how people do it because it's so all-consuming. Um, it certainly was for me. Um, but I think being a consultant just allowed me to get a little bit of a balance and find some time, you know, that I could actually be creative in. Yeah, that's great. It's really nice to hear that you you sort of, you don't necessarily have to give everything up. It's just, you know, you just find the right places to fit things as, as yeah. stuff moves around. Yeah, and I think for me, I just have to be disciplined about it. Was um, when you, you found this time and you started writing, was Mina and the Undead the first sort of full story that you wrote? Yeah, so I'd queried other things. I'm trying to remember. I think Mina was the first thing since leaving my teaching job. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was the first thing that I felt really genuinely like this could be something. Um, other stuff, I did query agents, but without quite the same enthusiasm and, and kind of second-guessing myself. And I think maybe writing things that I thought people wanted me to write. Whereas this book, I just went, I went to New Orleans in 2012 and just had this idea kind of simmering in my head for a couple of years. And then it got to a few years later and I was like, I need to write this book about New Orleans. It's just, it's still there kind of nagging at me. And I just threw everything I loved into it. And I was like, okay, vampires, serial kills, murder mysteries, it's all going in there. And I think having that passion about it, I've just realised then that that's what I need to do with every book. The thing I'm working on now is sort of a standalone alongside other things. Um, and I'm still doing that same thing. I'm exploring all different stuff that I'm interested in and that's going to keep me going because you have to edit it so many times you've got yeah. to really really love it I think and I really want to keep going back to it yeah the funny thing is because I talk to a lot of authors who you, uh, often when a book is about to come out like in like in your case or when a book has just come out and it's funny because 
a lot of people say what you don't realize is that you know you've spent a year or so writing the book and then the publishers gone to edit it and then once it's edited there's this whole sort of like timeline where you kind of finished this book really like one or two years ago and now you're coming now people come on the podcast and then they talk about this book uh, that they actually haven't worked on for quite a long time <laughs> yeah it's been nearly a year since I finished writing it I sent it to my agent last September because my agent is really editorial and um, it's one of the things I love about her among many mm-hmm. um, and she always does a first round of edits for me so I know she asked for it at the beginning of September um, so it has been nearly a year but I did a lot of rounds of edits I don't know whether it's because it's a murder mystery whether I'm just that kind of writer but I need to do a lot a lot of checks um, to make sure the mystery, all the elements line up and everything's properly seeded. And um, it takes a lot. One day I'll try not writing a mystery and see if that <laughs> takes any less rounds of edits. But yeah, for me, writing is a, I think writing, the, the last book, I only had a, a few months to write it because of the, like you said, the publisher's timeline. But then it took me like eight months to edit it or something like that. So, wow, yeah. So as someone who does write murder mysteries, as you say, when you're when you're sort of going to create a new story on a on a scale of let's say whimsically vague to like rigorously mapped out how heavy is the planning whimsically vague um, <laughs> yeah. i i get so with mina and the slayers my second book um there's kind of two main threads to it mina um discovers that people um are be a lot of people seem to be being murdered or being attacked in a way that seems like vampires are killing them um and she's working for the police and they stumble upon this um and similarly she realizes that somebody is also killing these vampires so we end up with a slayer storyline and a, um, a murder storyline and it turns out that some of the murders have been done by a serial killer um so this I, I do this myself I, initially it was just it was just the slayer storyline and then I was like wouldn't it be fun if I had a serial killer um and it was fun um but it just meant that I'd got two really big threads I'd kind of got this story of the slayers dealing with a huge vampire problem in the city and what was causing that and then I've got this serial killer who's also taking people out as well and Mina of course as she does getting caught in the middle of all of it <laughs> and where does the um so you, you say it's kind of whimsically whimsically vague in the in the planning kind of stage of it and you and you grow it as you kind of create it yeah where does it kind of grow from like do you come up with the characters first or the world first i mean so mina and the undead um it's probably easy to talk about that because obviously by slayers although it was difficult still to write and the advantage that all of that was established so the world it was 1990s new orleans still a few months later um it was the same characters with a few extras so i think Meaning in the Undead was when I really had to test my writing process. And yeah. I still, I'll have to share the page at some point. I've still got this um, A1 piece of paper. I think it's a huge piece of paper. A1? <laughs> uh, it might be. It might be A2. I might maybe exaggerating. So but big. it is this is this huge piece of paper. Um, it was an author called Laurie House Anderson said that she did like a big mapping thing. And I thought I would try it too. And it worked for me. So I just, um, I think I wrote in the middle, New Orleans Vampires. And that was the working title for quite a while. Um, all kinds of things that I wanted to go in there so I wrote things like bones and skulls which made its way into one of the bars in the book and I just had this really fun mind mapping process and um, it was based on some of the local myths from New Orleans so I knew I wanted those to go in there and that those myths would kind of bleed into reality because people in the city it's really fascinating they tell you stories about ghosts like they believe in them like oh my grandma sat next to a ghost on the bus or 
I know somebody who saw a vampire. I know somebody who's a vampire. And (laughs) seriously, like for quite a lot of people, it's kind of, it's just completely different from living in Yorkshire. If I said that to people, they would not believe me. Yeah. Um, So that was kind of where where I started with just this vague sense of mythology. Hmm. And I tried a couple of characters and um, I started off writing a chapter without any planning. And it had two characters. One of them was a fortune teller and one of them was um, a guy. And they worked in this like horror house and straight away I knew that there was this big mansion where people dressed up as horror movie characters and even that just initial vague idea that became a huge part of the book so I think a lot of the early seeds make it into my books um well this main girl being a fortune teller didn't work at all and somehow as soon as Mina was named after the girl from Dracula and her sister was named after Elizabeth Bather I thought well what kind of mother would name her daughters after like (laughs) two kind of tragic one horrendous vampire woman one kind of vampire victim but strong woman in her own right um and you know i won't give too much away about the book but a very specific kind of mother names her children that and it just and it grew from there so i think it probably started with new orleans spanned out a bit into story and mythology and then as soon as i got those characters that propelled me through the book and then the plotting was a big back and forth of I'd plot, get really excited and want to write it, write a bit, run out of steam and then go back to plotting. And I think I still write a bit like that. It's all a bit chaotic. I think I like um, the book I'm working on now. I think I've roughly plotted it out and I'm, this is the most plotting I've ever done. But I already know I'm going to change so many things and go off on tangents. So I think even if I plot it, it's going to end up being a plotted out book. Yeah, that's kind of the beauty of first drafts though. And obviously yeah. everyone approaches them differently, but... Um... I've spoken to authors who the, the reason they they kind of love doing what is often referred to as the vomit draft is because they know that nothing matters and like everything is up for grabs. Everything can change. Like aliens can come in at some point. It doesn't matter because you're just going to change it anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's maybe a personality type thing because I'm quite a perfectionist in terms of like if I'm working on a desk I like it too tidy my house isn't tidy but like my, my workspace and my thinking process I think I hold myself to quite a high standard so um I remember Lainey Taylor saying that when she writes a book it takes her so long because she has to review everything she's written before she mm. can carry on and I'm a little bit like that like I feel like if a scene's nagging at me and something's not working I kind of have to fix it there and then um so my process isn't really that really fast draft it's drafting but also editing at the same time um and if I know something's not working I've written myself into a corner I do go back and fix it because otherwise I just think I'm going to keep going too far down that wrong path and then have to unpick it all later yeah 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 now some people who my friend Mia Kushnia um she bullet points bits that you know bits of the plot that aren't flowing or that she just wants to come back to later she writes a few bullet points and then carries on writing. I think, how freeing is that? But I just can't do it. I've tried. And I just, if a scene isn't working, I have to keep hammering it until I get it right. Or as close to right as you can in a first draft. I, I wouldn't carry on forever. I, I would eventually think, okay, I've got to leave that now. Yeah. But yeah. yeah there yeah, is a lot yeah. of editing for me as I go along. <laughs> but that's, actually, what I imagine you're doing there is just you're taking something that would, you're taking something that would take time probably towards the latter part of that draft. And you're just, bringing it forwards and doing it then because presumably it will you know on your second sweep there won't be as much editing yeah I think so and I think partially because um as my day job I'm a consultant and I do things like I write texts and I edit other people's texts so I think I have quite an editorial side of my brain that I'm using all the time and it's hard to switch that off when I'm writing so I think that's still nagging at me it's like come on fix this come on you can do better than that (laughs) that doesn't make sense um so I think this is why 
Mina and the Slayers was a real like exception to the rule. I've never written a book in a few months. I had to really push through some of that doubt and some of that kind of um, editorial mind and just write it at some points. It was it was quite hard actually. That yeah, sometimes you've just got to face the fear, right, and just charge in and write it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned your your friend. Um, we'll just skip a section if if she's finding it difficult because I think it was I don't know if it was Brandon Sanderson's lectures, but I know it's um, someone like that who was saying when they're writing and then they they think about a very like exciting scene that's going to happen later on, they will skip straight to it and write that scene then and there because their energy for that scene right now is at an all-time high. And if they try and write something else, they're just going to be sort of going through the motions kind of because they just want to get to that later scene. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because I don't do that for a couple of reasons. I think first I use scenes like that as a bit of a carrot. Like it's not too much of a giveaway, I don't think, to say there's a big carnival scene in my book. And I knew very early on that I was going to have this kind of big coming to blows of some kind. And I didn't quite know what it was going to be. I was really excited about writing kind of a spooky carnival. So I just held that in front of myself, like, come on, you're nearly there. But also I think if you're having to push through a scene and you're not excited about it, sometimes I have to take a minute because I've written scenes like that where I'm like, this is going nowhere, I'm bored. Like, yeah. I'm actually switching off as I'm reading this back. So is there a problem with this? So I think, yeah, I, I know quite a lot of other people do that. I think it was V. Schwab that I saw at an event recently that she, um, and on, I don't know if she's on all books, but on some she writes them out of order. I just I don't think I could keep the thread of it for one thing. I think I'd get really confused. Um, but also I just I like having that thing to push towards and writing chronologically, knowing where I'm going. For me, that is really motivating. Yeah. Yeah, I know that makes sense. Um we're talking about world building and things like that. There's an interesting sort of thing that I think a lot of people often don't think about is um you're now writing the sequel to yeah. uh Mina, which is obviously a sort of fantastical horror world yes when you're doing that you don't need to do the world building again but and this is probably something that i imagine comes up in the copy editing phase are there points where you need to add in sort of reminders of how the story world mechanisms kind of work for the readers who might not have read the book for you know six months nine months a year yeah, a few people contacted me about that actually and said, is there a summary at the front of the book? Because I love that. And I was like, oh, no, I didn't do that. Um, I know some people do. They write a short summary of book one. Um, I know a podcaster in Fictional Hangover wrote a summary of my books. So I've been directing people to that. If they want to read that, there's a really good summary out there. But the way I did it was I just tried to seed what I thought were the important takeaways from the first book, like, for example, characters that didn't make it, mm -hmm. um, that played a big part in the book and left a lasting impression on the characters. They're mentioned in the first few pages just to remind the reader, this is what happened. This is why Mina's feeling this way. Um, and I just tried to remind people. And um, I really liked Jim Butcher's um, books, which I'm forgetting the name of now. Oh, um, Storm Front is the first book, The Dresden Files, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've noticed with his books that he re-describes Harry Dresden's apartment every time in virtually the same way. And I was like, why does he do this? And yet, and then I get into the description, I'm like, oh, it's brilliant. I can totally imagine this place. <laughs> I can imagine this floor layered with carpets and like tapestries all over the wall and a basement beneath that's really cold and full of, you know, his magical experiments and whatnot yeah and I think yeah, that you yeah. do need to do a lot of work to kind of remind the reader of this world because for my book one of my favorite things is the world building and making mm -hmm. it really evocative and because it's New Orleans and it's the 90s and I'm trying to get this kind of spooky and it's Halloween the second one so I really wanted to capture what Halloween is like in New Orleans 
Yeah. So I'm kind of trying to establish that new world. It's no longer this kind of sultry, too hot summer of the first book. It's now kind of a slightly cooler um, Halloween where all the Halloween stuff's popping up around Mina and she's loving that side of it. Um, so there's a real balance of re-establishing like the new world of the second book, creating some new interesting settings, but just reminding people, hey, this is what the Empire of the Dead Bar looks like. You've not been there for a while. Um, <laughs> you know, this is what these characters look like. Like I realised um, Mina's sister Libby and her girlfriend Della um, are quite a few drafts in. I thought, I haven't actually described them. I've just like, you know very oh, yeah. early on that they're a couple. They've been really affectionate with each other. But I didn't describe what they look like. And I know that some readers, um, some readers don't like that, but some people really need that kind of visual hook to imagine the character. So quite late on, I inserted a little bit of physical description um, of the two of them. And they're quite different characters in appearance as well. So I thought that contrast would be a really quick way of just reminding people, this is who you're dealing with. This is, you know, Libby Mina's older sister, um, her girlfriend who's slightly older again. And it just helps readers to kind of, figure out where they fit especially teenagers reading the book I think it's quite helpful to know well Mina's close to my age and this is Della who I might look up to she's a couple of years older um yeah so yeah it's interesting there's a lot of I think a lot of that comes later the early drafts are just kind of figuring out the trajectory of the book and then the later ones you kind of layer in layer in details yeah. but not so many that you're just weighing the reader down with backstory and description when they just want to get to the murders and the vampires <laughs> exactly. and kissing you know whatever whatever yeah. floats the boat about the book i think you've got to keep things moving when it when it comes to describing your characters do you do that sort of technique of trying to give each character a very a, a very singular distinctive quality i do and i don't i think some characters I, I imagine sort of a hollywood actor i have to admit and, and sometimes i admit to it so lucas um who is a quite a big character um was le- basically leonardo dicaprio in my head so I said, <laughs> he's like leonardo dicaprio in the basketball diaries just and then i explain what that is for people who have no idea what the basketball diaries is okay. <laughs> i kind of use that as a shorthand for people who are movie geeks like me but also it kind of tells you what sort of person Mina is as well, because she, like me, me and my husband play a game where we like to say that people look like Hollywood celebrities and we kind of mm-hmm. murmur it to each other when we first meet somebody. <laughs> so we probably did that to you when we met you at Live Fest. I'm sure you've got probably. some look like. I can't remember who it was. Um, Kate Harrington? Yeah, maybe. Probably. <laughs> that's somebody, the one I usually Somebody handsome from Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. We'll go with that. Um, but yeah, so I think that I do things like that. Um Jared, as soon as I imagined him, I imagined him being really tall and kind of very slightly awkward um, and really fidgety. And that just became a real trait that whenever I imagined him, he's like messing with his hair, he's got his hands Uh. in his pockets. Whereas Mina, the main character, I think it's more because she's the narrator. It's about her internal world. So it's like I said, it's the movie references and it's everything reminds her of like actors and books she's read and stuff like that, um, which is a bit what I'm like. Um, so yeah, I don't think I intentionally give people a trait, but I think that may, as I'm thinking about it, each of my characters probably has something. Um, again, with Libby, it's probably more of a personality thing, um, yeah. and it, and it's that that creates the conflict between her and Mina because they're quite different people and they've reacted to events in their life very differently. So for me, that was Libby's defining characteristic: her her sort of kind of spikiness compared with Mina wanting to open up and talk, and Libby's like, "Go away, I'm holding you at arm's length." Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I think they all have something, but maybe not as obvious as this person has this particular mannerism, this particular appearance yeah. thing. I think it's all a bit of a mixture. Yeah, there's a there's a sort of uh, silly name for, for that technique. I can't remember what it is, but it, it's things like, yeah, that person has red hair. This person has a moustache. That person always wears a silly hat. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, you can just say one thing 
and then immediately the reader knows who that is yeah maybe as I'm thinking about yeah I suppose Jared wears movie t-shirts as well so maybe each person does have kind of a bit of a thing or several things um yeah yeah, it is useful I'm a person who likes the visuals I remember um is it Stephanie Mayer in um, Twilight saying that she purposely didn't describe Bella that much because she wanted readers to create a Bella and you know be the Bella if they wanted to be but I think I like physical characteristics because I think I wrap all that up in what I'm imagining as I'm reading a book. So I try and put that in mind as well. Yeah. Also, no matter how much you describe something, if you were to describe, if you know, if I were to read a, a description of someone and you were to read a description of someone that was exactly the same, we would imagine different people. Yeah, it's fascinating that, isn't it? I remember um, I did an interview last year about book one and somebody had like um, fancasted all the person who interviewed me had um, picked people to look like the characters and some of them like the age was completely different like I'd specifically said this woman's in her 50s and he'd chosen this like young actress who had like completely different skin color and things and it was interesting he'd just taken the details and created this character that I'd not written but and he was like oh I love her she's great and he just created his own version of her which I thought was really interesting because the book kind of does belong to readers doesn't it I can't yeah. I've I've put that out there now I can't kind of say oh actually you know, she had different colour hair to what you think. You know, it's it's great if people want to impose their own kind of view and interpretation. Like, I find some characters a bit annoying. And some people say, oh, I really see myself in them. They're my favourite character. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't just tell you they really annoy me then. <laughs> it's cool. Because it's such a collaborative, in, in like a weird way, it's actually a collaborative process between the author and the reader, I think. Yeah, it is. You're being creative as a reader because you Mm. are using the author's words to conjure what you're seeing and you're focusing on some people will really latch onto the setting. Some people, I think, read my book just from like pop culture reference to pop culture reference and that's what they're they're desperate to get to that next 90s reference and go, oh yeah, that reminds me of The Lost Boys, which I know is 80s, but you know, still. Um, (laughs) So yeah, and I think um, like somebody yesterday wrote a little thing that they'd just finished book two and it was that, the pop culture, she just wanted more and more and more. Whereas other people would be like, what is she talking about? What is The Lost Boys? Um, so yeah, I love that about books. I love that people, some people want more kissing, some people want less kissing. I've just got to put exactly the amount that I want in the book and just be okay with it, I think. <laughs> I have heard of, I, I, no names, uh, but I have heard of editors and publishers encouraging more or less uh, physical like kissing and stuff in books. Yeah, it's interesting that my publisher and my agent both didn't really comment on that. I think they just let me go with the relationship stuff because I'd got a really clear vision for Mina and Jared's relationship, like how I wanted it to be, like start from friendship and kind of gradually build an intensity. Mm. And they seemed okay with that. It was the violence. <laughs> Some of it, they were like... <laughs> It was a real serial kill. One particular bit, I remember my agent said, um, you might describe the flesh peeling a little bit too much. I was like, oh, is there too much flesh peeling? Okay, this is a teen <laughs> book. Maybe I can rein flesh peeling in a little bit. So yeah, it's interesting how certain age, some, I think certain publishers do want, they think that YA needs a romantic relationship. This was the thing of maybe five years ago. I think luckily we're moving away from that because not everybody wants that in a book. And mm-hmm. I, I like it, but I like it to be part of a whole kind of, complex story as well like I, I do read romance books but it's not probably the predominant thing i look for in a book sure yeah, yeah. i mean it yeah romance as a standalone genre offers you know a very um a clear kind of cut thing and that's what the fans of that genre want yeah and i like the fact that with like i think mine sort of falls into mystery but also has that paranormal romance feel and i like that i think paranormal romance has a bit of uncertainty because without mm-hmm. you know giving too much away, it isn't necessarily guaranteed that every character will get everything they want. And 
especially being a series, you don't want to give every character everything that they've ever dreamed of straight away. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to make things difficult for them first and kind of hold them back and give them obstacles. Exactly. Yeah. Um, talking to uh, a mutual friend of ours, Naomi Gibson, she uh, she often talks about her characters and and her sort of goal with any story, the, the thing that she's creating is to mess with her characters as much as possible. Yeah. And she's like, if I don't know what to do, yeah. I just get one of the side characters to mess with the main character. <laughs> and Naomi's so lovely. And, and yet her books <laughs> yeah. are like, I mean, um, every line of you is just such a twisty, dark, like provocative, thought-provoking book. <laughs> And she's obviously, she's done that really well, that like mm-hmm. pushing the characters. Like it's interesting, Lydia, the main character, like she goes on this journey of like walking along this knife edge and you're just spending the whole time, like which side is she going to fall off? Am I going to be okay with what she does next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's great. It's really interesting ways that authors do think of how to keep their books interesting. Um, I, I think I'm really protective of Mina. So I sometimes I'm like, I have to remind <laughs> myself, she does need to have some adversity. She can't just cuddle Jared for, you know, 300 pages. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But as soon as Naomi had told me that, I was thinking back to the book. And then I realized that there are sections. And I was thinking, you know, analytically as from a very crafty perspective, thinking, oh, yeah, this is probably where it would have lulled. But (laughs) but I can see that you just brought in one of the side characters to cause problems. Yeah. And it works. It works really well. I just throw a dead body in if I'm getting a bit bored. <laughs> like, who can be murdered next? What can poor Mina? She's finds so many dead bodies. I don't know how it happens. Well, I had a bunch of, honestly, I had a bunch of uh, much more technical questions, but this was far more fun talking about your process and, and the creation of Mina. So I'm glad we did this instead. <laughs> oh, it's fine. I'm, I'm excellent at a tangent. If you ever need a tangent like linked to vampires and murder, I'm there for it. Amazing. I will, I'll, I'll bear you in mind whenever I need that kind of distraction. <laughs> Um, before we get to the last question, uh, I did notice on your Twitter that you are a uh, a voting member of the Horror Writers Association. What does that mean, really? Not a lot, really. Um, I joined the Horror Writers Association because Stephen King and various other mo- notable people are in it, like Adam Caesar and um, uh-huh. he wrote Clown in the Cornfield. And I thought maybe this is kind of an association that I need to be a part of and interestingly you need to have I don't remember the exact criteria but you need to have done something like sold so many copies or made so much in advance or whatever um in royalties um to be a member and I thought well actually this feels like a kind of really nice club to be a part of so I applied and got accepted and the voting part of it is that you once remember you can vote for people to win their award um so you can be nominated so Clown in the Cornfield won it, I think, year before last. I can't remember who won it this year. Not me, obviously. Um, but some, <laughs> some some incredibly notable author will have won it. Um, and it's just it just felt like a nice thing to be part of. I'm a member of Society of Authors as well, but the Horror Association just I just it was something I'd heard heard Stephen King was in for years and years. I was like, when I mm. write a book that's scary enough, like this is what I'm gonna do. <laughs> that's scary enough. So yeah, and I think it was just at the time maybe I can take that out now. I've probably done more interesting things since then, but it just felt like a nice moment that I was part of something with authors like that. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I think it's cool as well. Like uh you must feel very important to being a voting member. Yeah, no, maybe that's why I worded it like that at the time. But yeah, that's just how they describe it. But yeah, it does feel nice. I think one of the best things about being an author, honestly, has been like meeting people at Naomi at events and just finding these like amazingly talented but people that are just completely on my wavelength. Yeah. That you get on with immediately just because they, they totally understand what it's like to be kind of a a creative, kind of driven, focused on your book sort of person. I think it takes a very specific kind of person to be an author and <laughs> 
yeah I've, I've made loads of really good friends out of it authors like Cynthia Murphy and Catalyst who are amazing authors and like really amazing people too it, it's been lovely to be part of a community especially the UKYA community yeah I think is amazing like the last few years particularly it just seems to have got so much talent so many books that are doing really well um, yeah. and finding lots of readers which is which is really good yes bookish bookish people are very good at connecting with other bookish people and it's I love going to events and, and just meeting people and and uh talking to them because it's it's so easy when you know that you have invested just as much of yourself into this kind of community and this and these creations as everyone else has yeah and it's just it's a specific kind of person isn't it who loves being immersed in these fictional worlds and knowing like you said the the kind of effort it takes to create these worlds and Mm -hmm. how hard it is to get published i mean you've obviously spoken to a lot of authors like very few say, oh, I, you know, I got my book deal the second I went out on submission and I was given a seven-figure deal. Like, it's somewhere like that for many people. Um, that, those are but, just the ones you hear about in the news. Annoying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's and it's it's really nice. I think as soon as you meet a bookish person, you know that there is going to be some point um, of familiarity and that yeah. you're probably going to be friends with them by the end of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you've been in, in one of the many trenches together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um amazing well that is a, a lovely way to to end the interview and lead into the uh the much dreaded final question uh which is uh amy if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book which book would you take with you can i just say this is a terrible question <laughs> and when i saw it i've only got one question for you i was like oh good i can cope with one question i saw the question i was like <laughs> no i can't cope with this question that's how I get you. I love yeah, no. my guests to be like, yeah. oh, you just only have one question homework. <laughs> okay, so I thought about it a lot and I thought, what is a book that if I was stuck on Desert Island would not only be useful, but I actually, you know, could entertain me for a while. And I went for The Beach by Alex Garland because mm. survival techniques, you know, yeah. they have to survive on a desert sort of island. And I thought that that would be useful and practical, but also... It's a book. This is a random tangent, but bear with me. I used to go on a, a skiing holiday when I was a kid. Um, and every year there was this new thing that was a trend. So one year it was like a new Game Boy would come out and everybody was playing Game Boys on this coach trip. And one year it was the beach and all the adults were reading the beach. And I think I was probably 13 or 14. I was like, I need to read this book. And I opened it and I was like, it's about drugs <laughs> and people get killed and stuff. And it was such a like, defining moment for me. I learned so much from that book as a teenager. It really opened my eyes. And I've read it so many times since then, and it's just so multi-layered and interesting. And it's just, it's a snapshot of this guy Rich's life. And you realise as an adult that he's actually a person who is just like falling apart. Yeah. And so many things are going wrong for him. And he's got this kind of imagined world and this real world of things that are happening to him. And then they cast Leonardo DiCaprio in the film, which is amazing. <laughs> but, but yeah, another Leonardo DiCaprio moment. And I love the film, but it's a completely different thing from the book. If yeah. you if you like the film, you need to read the books. It's just mm-hmm. got so many layers to it. Have you read The Beach? I've not read it. I have seen the film, so I'm one of those yeah. people. I think I think you would like it. It's very interesting. It's different. Richard is a complete nerd like me who loves computer games, also like me. Mm. Um, and there's just so many beautiful details. There's this scene where he's talking about the real stars and comparing them to the stars he had in his ceiling back home, the plastic sticker stars. So, of course, I immediately bought plastic sticker stars and put them <laughs> on my ceiling. And it's just so like, you know, those books that are really evocative and they just take you to a place. So I think if I yeah. was going to take a book to a desert island, Richard kind of transports you to this beach in Thailand and he transports you to his home back in England that he sort of misses but sort of doesn't. Um, yeah, it would be a great book. I think I could last for quite a while on the beach. <laughs> well, that's great. It, it's um, it's amazing just hearing that little anecdote from you, how, how connected you seem to that book and how big an impact it seems to have had on you. 
Yeah, it did. There have been other books, like the other contenders, like Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor, I think, mm-hmm. had one of the best reveals of a YA book ever in it to me. I won't say too much more to spoil it. Um, but you know, a book that makes you go, what? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. what? And you reread it again, and you're like, yes, that really did happen. Wow. Um, so that book had a massive impact to me because I just think she's a tremendous author and there have been others um, like I was thinking can I actually live without a Kendara Blake book like Anna Dressed in Blood is a great horror that really kept my attention but I was thinking like long term The Beach has just been a book that's uh, like you said it's had such a lasting impact on me it's probably not the best book ever written um, or not a book that everybody would love but it's just it's kind of featured in my life at various points just so that I feel like I would I would need it along on the journey with me yeah brilliant I love that. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the podcast and sharing your uh, your knowledge and experience and and a sort of deep dive into into the creation of Mina and how you approach uh, writing as a whole. It's been really it's been really fun chatting with you. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it as well. Sorry about all the tangents. <laughs> you enjoyed them as much as I did. <laughs> Not at all. I loved it. Um, and for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with uh, what Amy's doing, you can follow her on uh, most of the socials at ya under my skin or on TikTok at Amy McCaw Author, or you can head over to her YouTube channel, which is just Amy McCaw. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK or on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast. Thanks again to Amy and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for hanging around until the end. If you're interested in starting your own podcast but aren't really sure what that looks like, I can't recommend Zencaster enough. It's so simple to host, record and download your podcast with and it even has a built-in transcription AI. It functions entirely in the internet browser, which means all your guests have to do is click on a link and they'll be brought into the conversation. If you click on the link in the description, you'll get 30% off the first three months. All you have to do is click on the link in the description. Thanks again for supporting the show and we'll see you in the next episode. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.